From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is in the house ready to take your questions. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205 2712985 um you can always send us an email open line at ewtn.com or you can text us your question text the letters ewtn to 55000 wait for a response text your first name and your question message and data rates may apply I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson. Ah, check that. Uh, Michael McCall doubling up on Ace McKay. Ace McKay is our celebrity social media maven today. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live and Ace deems your comment to be worthy of passing along, he will indeed do that. Uh, he is the gatekeeper extraordinaire for this hour uh, in this our day and time. Uh, so say hello to Ace if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live. And our hostess, he is every single Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? Fine. I was wondering if you were the key master. No, let's not He's go the there. <laughs> <laughs> no state no state puff marshmallow commercials, please, today on Open Line Monday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Father, got an email here from Aaron. Don't know if he's a Ghostbusters fan or not, but uh, during the Last Supper when Jesus gave the bread and wine and stated, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in memory of me, was he just referring to Peter or to everyone else as well? He was referring to all the apostles and then obviously their successors, the bishops, and uh, we also priests uh, participate in that. So, uh, and, and this is very evident when you look at the original text uh, of the Greek and also um, Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, it's not a, a singular uh, reference uh, just to Peter, uh, as you would have in other languages. In uh, the English language, there's a little ambiguity when you say, hey, you, uh, is the you singular or plural? If I say singular, it just means you uh, as an individual, and if it's plural, then it's uh, the larger context. So, that we could tell, plus the fact that the church has always, uh, for 2,000 years, consistently understood that as being that he gave this power and authority to the bishops uh, and to the priests. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines. It's 833-288-3986. Dave would like to know, if the church teaches... It is not our place to judge the status of a person's soul after they die. Then why does the church rule on the souls of the saints? <laughs> oh, this guy's got a good legal mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we're not making the judgment. Uh, the church is, and the church can because the church is the mystical body of Christ. She is the spotless bride of Christ. So uh, when the Pope defines uh, someone as being canonized, that's exercise of, of papal infallibility, and uh, it means this person is worthy of the reception of um, reverence. Obviously, we do not adore or worship. We only give that to God. But we give uh, respect and uh, reverence to, uh, it's called uh, dulia, um, as in we give Mary hyperdulia, the highest form of, of veneration and honor. But only God we give latria or worship. So it's not a judgment uh, as, say, it's that the Pope has determined this person is worthy to be considered a saint. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. And, you know, Father, just to expound on that a little bit, I think, you know, sometimes we, it's good to have a little uh, reset on these things. And and when someone is declared a saint, what Holy Mother Church is saying is that the preponderance of the evidence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are, you know, suggesting with, you know, out reservation that this person must surely be in heaven. And people make a lot of, uh, especially our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, make a lot of this whole miracle stuff. And we're not necessarily saying, well, we're not at all saying that that this particular individual uh, is performing a miracle. But what we are saying is that something took place that is miraculous that was in response to requests for the intercession of that particular individual. And if that happened based on requests for the intercession of that individual, that individual must be in heaven in order for God to honor that request. Absolutely. And we're not saying that only the canonized persons are saints in heaven. These are the ones that we can publicly uh, acknowledge. So grandma and grandpa who are in heaven are as much a saint as uh, St. Peter and St. Paul. Uh, but you are correct that the church requires, as of this time that you and I are living in, one uh, miracle through their intercession uh, for beatification and two miracles uh, performed after their death uh, would make them a canonized saint, or at least make them eligible, because again, it's the decision of the, of the Holy Father uh, uh, to do that. But these are miracles that are performed by God at uh, the saint's request. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. In the Gospel of John, Betty writes, when Mary visits Elizabeth, Elizabeth is filled with joy and and John the Baptist jumped with joy. Was John also filled with the Holy Spirit? And if so, was he born without sin since the Holy Spirit cannot live with sin? Oh, this is good, especially today. <laughs> this is the Feast of the Beheading of St. John the Baptist. Um, the Church interprets that to mean that although he was conceived in sin, uh, because he was not given the singular grace of the Immaculate Conception as Mary was, he was born without original sin because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and sanctified within his mother's womb. Uh, and That's because he proclaimed by jumping in his mother's womb, by leaping, that this the Messiah had arrived, that Jesus was in his mother's womb, uh, a day or two at the most uh, in terms of his conception, and St. John was already six months uh, uh, conceived in his mother's womb. And so that uh, visitation scene that we see in, John, in Luke's Gospel is the way the church now it says that we can confidently say John was born without original sin, although he had been conceived in it. 
Uh, Carl would like to know, if you don't believe in transubstantiation, can you still be Catholic? No. Uh, that's just a short answer. Um, we would, I mean, it's it's a package deal. You, 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 there's no dogmas that, that are up for grabs once they've been defined. But this is one of the real core central ones, too. It's like the divinity of Christ or the, the three persons of the Trinity, uh, the belief uh, that the bread and wine uh, truly, really, and substantially are changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Now, if someone's having difficulty with that, and they're thinking about becoming Catholic or they're in the RCIA program, uh, we want them to continue to struggle with it. And then at that moment that they can fully embrace it, then by all means, uh, you know, if there's no other impediments, you know, they can be brought into full communion or they can be baptized if they haven't been baptized. But uh, we don't want to say, well, the other dogmas are okay, but this one, uh, no. And because it is so important, because Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and then he also says uh, at the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood. So I understand that it's going to take some people a while to totally embrace it, just like papal infallibility or the Immaculate Conception. Uh, any one of these things might take extra time. But we don't want somebody coming into the church who says, I can't accept that. Well, d don't worry about it. Yes, you know, it's like the Bill of Rights. You know, you have to accept all of them. You know, if you want to be a U.S. citizen, you can't just pick and choose. Yeah, that's becoming a less compelling analogy by the day. <laughs> I'm limited because I was born in 62. What can I say? You and me both, Father. Um, several of our EWTN radio family members are uh, celebrating their anniversaries this week, including Good Shepherd Radio in Jackson, Michigan, celebrating eight years on the air. Congratulations to Doug Schumard, who got that thing off the uh, ground, and Bob Look. Bringing listeners in Jackson eight years of solid EWTN Catholic radio. Just getting started on a Monday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Rolando in Illinois, and there's plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And if you're outside the United States and Canada, we still want to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. It is Monday. It's EWTN's Open Line. That means Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. New book for August from EWTN Publishing, The Mystery of Divine Love by Father Wojciech Yurtik. He is the theologian of the pontifical household, and he aspires to nothing less than giving you intimate eye contact with God. Father Yurtik reveals how to pray in faith each time you pray, even when your faith has been challenged. 
how Christ shows us the face of the Father in his paternal heart, and much, much more. The Mystery of Divine Love by Father Wojciech Giertik, available at EWTNRC.com. By Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. As advertised, first up today is Luke in the great state of Illinois, uh, listening on WSFI Radio. Rolando, thanks so much for holding on. You're on with Father Tregilio. Okay, great to you, Father. Thank you. Okay, uh, with all due respect, please enlighten me. Uh, I know there's a, uh, a reason for this, because... God knows everything. But I want to be enlightened about the verse. I don't have my Bible with me. It's about the uh, the uh, father against daughter, mother against son. In the unity, uh, I mean, there's disparity there. The, uh, Jesus wants to unify the family close, uh, and the bottom line is love. Why? How come... He is it is it a different audience when he spoke that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because we have to um, keep things in context. And the context is, uh, first of all, when Jesus spoke in ancient Hebrew, they did not have niceties in their language as we do today in the English language. So, like we have like superlative. So I can say this is the best. Uh, you can use the comparative, that's better. And then uh, in the singular, this is good. They didn't have that in ancient Hebrew. So to make a point, uh, to express that that superlative sense, you had to use something like hyperbole. So like when Jesus says, uh, if your right eye causes sin, cut it out. Uh, you know, father against, uh, uh, father against son, mother against daughter. It's hyperbole. He says one must hate your family, okay? He's not talking uh, in a, that is to be understood or interpreted literally. That's what literally the words say. But the meaning behind the words is in the context. And so when he's talking about division in the family, he's not advocating that we go at each other's necks like a lot of people do today. But he's saying that God must come first. All right? Our relationship with God comes first even before family. But if we're right with God, we're going to treat our family members the way we're supposed to. It's when we put family members before God and people say, well, you know, my husband's not going to church, my wife doesn't practice, so I'm not going to go and, and antagonize them. Or my kids, you know, uh, they think it's okay to be living together, they're not married, or, you know, my son or daughter wants to have a, a, a gay wedding or something. Uh, that's what he's talking about, is that we have to put God first, and then if we follow God precisely, completely, totally, then yes, there will be... Um, uh, harmony in the family, but initially there will probably be division. Just like as we know today, that if you speak the truth in charity and uh, discreetly, you're still going to get blowback. So it's the context of what Jesus is saying. It's not just to be interpreted, you know, um, too casually. Thanks, Rolanda. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Francesca in the great state of Minnesota listening on Real Presence Radio. Francesca, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. What can we do for you? Um, so I'm just wondering, a couple years ago, uh, we lost a baby about halfway through the pregnancy. And I'm just wondering, since that baby wasn't able to be baptized, 
Um, and then also we lost one earlier too. Are they still in heaven or what? Like what happens to them since they aren't baptized? Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, but I, I want to assure you that uh, you have nothing to, to worry or be afraid of because if you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, since it was composed in 1992, has been tweaked a few times since then, you will not find in there uh, the Church's former uh, teaching on limbo, because limbo was never a dogma or doctrine. It was a theological conclusion that tried to explain how can you have the necessity of baptism, and yet some people die, uh, like you know, um, children in utero who had no chance to be baptized. And so limbo was offered as an explanation to keep that, but now the understanding is that there is a baptism of desire, which even St. Thomas Aquinas talks about, a baptism of desire, which is different from a baptism of water, like we do at the sacrament of baptism, or a baptism by blood, like happened with the um, Holy Innocents uh, at the time of Jesus' birth. So the baptism of desire is the desire of the parents that this child be baptized, and um, uh, only God, the good Lord knows that if this person had... Uh, grown up to the age of reason with and adulthood, would they have wanted a baptism? So we believe and are confident that if you know that was the case, mom and dad would have had them baptized. They would have been raised in a uh, in a Christian family that uh, that would have extended to them. Plus, we believe what Saint Augustine, and we're going way way back, okay, uh, to the to the sixth century, that said that God offers everyone um, sufficient grace to be saved. It's efficacious to those who cooperate with it. So how does a, a baby in the womb cooperate? Well, God can provide that ability at that moment. So we, we never now um, make a, a distinction between a baby that's, that's born and says, well, you know, you can't have uh, uh, funeral rites or something. No, of course we, we, we do. And I think that you, you can be confident that your, your son uh, or daughter uh, is truly with the Lord. Does that put your heart at rest, Francesca? Yes, it does. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for the phone call today. Uh, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Two open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Our friend Anna Maria is on YouTube, and she asks, John the Baptist said the difference between me and Jesus is the difference between water and spirit. Is he saying water is in earth-like, spirit is in heaven? What is he saying? Uh, well... <laughs> John was using physical water, and it was a call to conversion. It wasn't the sacrament of, of baptism that he was doing. Uh, it was a symbolic gesture. And there is a very tangible difference between physical water uh, and the Holy Spirit. But in the sacrament of baptism, which Jesus is the one who instituted it, uh, and then said, go baptize uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word baptize, baptizdein in Greek means to wash. And you obviously wash with water. It washes away original sin, and it pours in uh, the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It gives that person sanctifying grace. It makes them a child of God. So there's this, and I don't want to use the word dualism like they're in competition with each other, okay? But they're distinct. And John's baptism was not the sacrament of baptism. And Jesus uh, certainly wants us to receive the Holy Spirit, but in the chronology of the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is not given to the apostles until uh, Easter when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then in a very manifest way at Pentecost. Now, you and I, 
when we're baptized, we don't, we don't have to wait as long as the apostles did. Uh, when we're baptized, our original sin is washed away. Our soul is made clean. We're justified in the eyes of God. And then we have the pouring in of the Holy Spirit, as well as God the Father and God the Son. So uh, there is the physical aspect of the water, but then there's also what the water symbolizes, uh, a washing away, because that word baptize literally means to wash. Uh, next up is Luke in the Florida Panhandle today, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Luke, you're on with Father Trujillo. Uh, hi. Uh, can, can you hear me okay? Yes. Hello. Yeah, okay, good. Because I'm, on, I'm sorry, I'm driving. I'm on, I'm on Bluetooth. Um, I, I was reading you, Cepheus. Oh, by the way, Father Trujillo, you're, you're the best apologist out there. You're really great. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, really, really, you're very business-like, right? Down, down to down to get to the point. But but anyway, um, I was reading Eusebius. I think it was book two, and he uh, said that uh, it was handed down that that, that uh, James, the brother of the Lord, was a son of Joseph, which would which would uh, imply you know from an earlier marriage. And I know that that that, that kind of links with uh, that, that, uh, tradition in the Eastern Church, right? I believe that's that's what the Orthodox do do believe that, but I, I, I cannot I don't have metaphysical certitude about that. Um, are you asking how what the what the Roman Church thinks about it? Yeah, what, what what's our official position? I'm I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm, I'm okay. Catholic. All right, great. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, the Church has made no official pronouncement that that completely condemns or denies uh, that uh, Joseph could have had. Uh, children from a previous marriage, but it is most unlikely. The um, the common teaching is that jo this was uh, St. Joseph's first and only marriage to Mary, that the um, brethren of the Lord that we hear about in the gospel are actually male relatives because the Greek word that's used in the gospel, adelphos in the singular, adelphoi in the, in the plural, can be extended to, yes, uh, brothers, but also uncles, uh, cousins, nephews, and so forth. So it's any male relative uh, that that Greek word refers to. And in Hebrew, they didn't have a way of making these these nice uh, delineations of nephew and and cousin. Um, and we see this in the in the book of Genesis when um, remember Abraham and his um, nephew Lot. Well, that's what, how we say we say nephew Lot in the uh, Old Testament in Greek, especially in, in when you read the. Um, King James Version, it says Abraham and his brother Lot, because they're going by the Greek word Adelphos. Well, it's not Abraham's blood brother sibling, because that's Haran. Uh, Lot is Haran's son, so you can make it cumbersome and say Abraham and his brother's son, or you could say Abraham and his nephew, but they didn't have a word for nephew, so they use a more inclusive word, like we would say relative. My brother's a relative, my cousin's a relative. So we don't believe that Joseph had any other children. I know sometimes people painstakingly want to say, well, what's the relationship? I think that St. James was uh, a cousin, a, a, probably a distant cousin. But, you know, John the Baptist is a cousin. We don't know with precision what's uh, Mary's, uh, you know, to what degree she related to St. Elizabeth. We know they're cousins, but uh, today we say, oh, that's my fourth cousin, that's my fifth cousin. Uh, I got fourth cousins I met in Father Ken's <laughs> parish in, in uh, Flemington, New Jersey. That means we have the same great-great-grandfather. But in ancient times, you know, they, they were not as precise 
they certainly recognized that you were related, so it meant something, but they were not picky about it. So a first cousin was treated the same way as a fourth cousin and vice versa. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call today, Luke, there in the Florida Panhandle. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Irene, Chris in Pennsylvania, Joseph in North Dakota, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Irene in Nebraska listening. She's a first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Irene, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Father John. There was Hi. a group of us. There was a group of us women sitting around, and we the discussion came up about sex change. Well, if, and the question was, if a person's born a female and becomes a male, can they become a priest in the Catholic Church, or can they consecrate the bread and wine? Yeah, I have a real good answer. I mean, real easy answer. No. <laughs> um, you have to be a baptized male in order for you to validly receive the sacrament of holy orders, and that's either to the diaconate, the priesthood, or the episcopacy. And uh, the maleness, all right, uh, is defined by nature. And, you know, uh, chromosomally, you know, it, it means uh, as a man you have an XY chromosome, uh, females have XX. I mean, I, we all learned that in, in uh, eight, uh, eighth grade. <laughs> I think we learned in third grade biology uh, uh, as far back it goes. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't have these uh, surgeries and procedures and hormone treatment that they want to, they believe, transition. But biologically, uh, metaphysically, you know, you're either male or female. And no matter what parts you put on or take off, you're still one of the two genders and that's it. So, and I do believe um, the, the story I had heard a year or two ago that somebody attempted to do that. There was... Uh, some uh, female who, or maybe one or two, who had the operation and then purported to be uh, of the male gender and applied to the seminary, but uh, it was discovered right away. But let's just, for worst case scenario, hypothetically say they got in and they fooled everyone. They would not be validly ordained, all right? Even if the Pope ordained them, you have to be uh, a baptized male. Can't fool God. You, you just can't do that, no. And uh, so that's that's an absolute right there. Um, now, remember, there's that weirdo story about Pope Joan that that's allegedly some lady pre pretended to be a man and got all the way up to the chair of St. Peter. And, well, the Protestant theologians uh, over 150 years ago debunked it, all right, even though that people still talk about it, but it never happened. But if, if it, even if it, someone would have tried, they would not have been Pope because they were not a bishop and it just doesn't work. Uh, thanks, Irene. That was a good question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Still a couple of lines open for you. Next stop is Feasterville, Pennsylvania. Chris is listening on the EWTN app. Chris, welcome to the program. You're on with Father John. 
Thank you, Father John. And Father John, thanks for the vast scope of your Catholic knowledge. Tremendous help. What I wanted to know, Father John, is this. If an individual has uh, done a whole lot of good works in his life, giving to the poor, so visiting the sick, and so on, if that individual later falls into mortal sin, but then uh, repents uh, of the mortal sin, is absolved in confession, would God still make use of the, all the good that that person had done prior to the mortal sin in uh, seeing whether the person would uh, make it to heaven or not? Uh, yeah, um, we want, I want to make a distinction that uh, we're not, we don't earn our way into heaven, so it's not that you, know, you have enough good works to get in, but uh, if you were truly good and you did good things and then slipped into sin, but then as you mentioned, uh, before you die, you repent, you go to confession, have your sins uh, absolved, uh, yes, uh, you take all those good works with you in a sense, and uh, you're because at the moment of abs- absolution, when the priest uh, absolves your sins, you're put right again. You're you're as spotless as as the day uh, you were baptized. It's just that you know there's this attachment to sin. That's why there might be a, a need for 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 purgatory after death, or you know you could certainly make good use of of uh, indulgences at that time. But you have to be in the state of grace. So it's not like your bank account, you know, if something happens and they close your bank account and then you reopen it, um, it's more that, you know, once you're restored to God's good graces, things go back uh, to normal, so to speak. Does that help, Chris? Thank you so very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Joseph, another first-time caller in the great state of North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Joseph, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, I just have a question about Lucifer, evil, and hell. So when Lucifer was cast down by God, is that when, I guess, evil was quote-unquote invented? And then my next part of the question is, when Jesus descended into hell after he died and saved all of the the souls, um, what's the difference between that and the souls that are there now? How come they all got saved, but the ones today aren't? I know that you can choose. I know you can choose God, and you know that kind of weighs on whether or not you go to hell or not. But didn't people before Jesus descended into hell have the choice to choose them or not? Okay, these are very, very good questions, and <clears throat> I would have to say it's not that uh, Lucifer invented evil, but yes, that was the first time evil uh, had been committed, because um, before God created Adam and Eve, before he created mankind, he created angels. So the uh, angels were his first creation, <clears throat> and when Lucifer and one-third of the angels rebelled when they committed sin, that's the first time evil existed in the universe, and so then God created hell for that very reason, because they, they were unworthy to be in heaven. Now, this um, battle that took place existed outside of heaven, because once you're in heaven, you can't get kicked out. It's impossible to sin when you're in heaven, because you're in complete possession of the one, the true, and the good. So, and though angels don't take up space, we can't say they were outside of heaven, but that's the only way we can just sort of describe it. So once Lucifer and his friends, the other fallen angels, are cast into hell, all right, um, that's the hell of the damned, which is different from the hell of the dead. Again, we go back to this idea that in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, 
They didn't have the niceties that we have today in terms of the language, so it was a little limited. So they used the same word, hell, to describe the place where the, the damned, that's the, the, the souls who are in hell with the devil and the demons, and then the hell of the dead, that the abode of the dead. Uh, these were the souls who were waiting for um, Jesus to come, the Messiah. So like Adam and Eve, they were in the hell of the dead. So it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Sarah, all, all the good people of the Old Testament had to wait. Even St. Joseph, uh, the foster father of Jesus, because he died before Jesus uh, died on Good Friday, he couldn't get to heaven until our Lord uh, redeemed the whole human race. Only the Virgin Mary was given that singular grace of the Immaculate Conception. So from Adam all the way to St. Joseph, they were waiting in what was called the hell of the dead. And that's where, when we say Jesus descended into hell, it was the hell of the dead, not the hell of the damned. Because those uh, those fallen angels, those souls who are there, will not only never get out, but they will never see the face of God. That's part of the torment uh, there. So it's not like Jesus went down there to um, taunt them, nor was it that he only was going to save a few. Because like you say, if some people were rescued from hell 2,000 years ago, well, then it's not fair that people would be left there now. Um, but that's not what happened. Those who are in the hell of the damned will always be there. Those who are in the hell of, uh, of, the, of the dead, uh, that no longer exists. There's just purgatory uh, for those who are preparing for heaven. There's hell. Those will never get there. And then there's heaven itself. Next up is Winnie in Richland, Washington, listening on the EWTN app. Winnie, you're on with Father John. Well, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I always wondered if you were if people were prompted to say that, but here I am saying that very same thing. Thank you. <laughs> okay, for now my you know. <laughs> now I know. Yes. Yeah. So my question is: I was talking to this fellow about democracy and all that, and uh, he said at one time that the Catholic Church in the past had. Uh, said that women shouldn't be able to vote because that would destroy the families, and I'm calling to see if that's true. <laughs> no, just well, I, that, just you, just you, Winnie. Not all women. <laughs> um, the, the church never officially said that. Okay, uh, that was never church teaching. Now that doesn't mean there weren't some individual bishops or priests, even maybe a pope on a bad day may have said that privately, but that's never been the teaching of the of the church, uh, and so. Uh, but the church has always cautioned of all political systems, whether it's democracy, whether it's a strict republic, uh, whether it's um, you know a monarchy. Uh, the ones that has condemned are communism and socialism because their very basis is on anti-Christian principles uh, that the state and in like um, uh, in fascism too that the state is superior to the individual. Um, the vote, especially like the right to vote that was um, um, recognized, okay, wasn't given, but recognized, you know, in the amendment here in the United States. Uh, rec that's the key word, is that, that women had that right. It was just not recognized until, uh, I believe it was the 19th Amendment uh, uh, took place. So, yes, the church believes that, you know, men and uh, citizens are, are equal, whether they're male or female, black or white, um, but uh, you may have you may find somewhere along the line some individual so well, I didn't like that or I don't agree with it that was never you you will not find it in the catechism you won't find it in the Baltimore catechism you won't find it in any uh, teaching authority uh, of the church. Does that put your mind at rest, yes. Winnie? Yes, I'll I'll go and, and 
explain that to him. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for the phone call. We appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, Annette is another first-time caller. She's in Fort Worth, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Annette, you're on with Father John. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. I have a question. Um, I'm reading a book um, of Jesus, The Way, the Truth, and the Light by Marco DiMaggio, I believe it's his name. And um, in the book, he says that um, Abraham was a pagan before God came to him. And um, on the second page after that, it says that Jerusalem was a pagan city. And I wanted to have some clarification on that. Okay. Um, Abraham, uh, okay, you, you could make the case Abraham was uh, uh, a pagan before he gets a call from the Lord because uh, uh, paganism is distinct from Judaism, and yet God created Adam and Eve, and we have that genealogy of Christ uh, that, that's in um, Matthew's Gospel it goes back to Adam. So I would not want to say uh, that Abraham was a pagan, but he wasn't a full believer until uh, God uh, introduced himself in a sense and said, you know, I'll make you uh, the father of many nations and makes the established covenant. Because then that infers or implies that what was before Abraham was all pagan, and certainly our Jewish brethren will not would not uh, countenance that. Uh, it was more of a, a casual, if you want to say, um, a type of, of, of belief, but there was not the, the formality involved. The, the covenant was established with Abraham, but there's a lot of people in between, like Noah, all right? Uh, I would not want to say Noah was, was, a, was a pagan, but he existed prior uh, to Abraham. So it's more of a, of a, a distinction of degree than uh, whether he was pagan or was he Jewish. What about the notion of Jerusalem being a pagan city? Um, that again, too. I think if Jerusalem was built by uh, the Jewish or Hebrew people. I don't. I, I I don't remember reading anything that had any solid like pagan roots. Like if you could say, oh, the Greeks built it or the Romans built it, yeah, then that would be a, a, a pagan origin. But I don't believe that Jerusalem, Jerusalem was always. I think it was created by uh, those who uh, were followers of Abraham. Uh, back to the great state of Washington. Claire, another first-time caller, is in Spokane listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Claire, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. Um, my question involves the Church's stance on scrupulosity, which I'm sure you know is a religious subset of OCD. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, when I was treated for it as a child, several priests told me that... Um, consistent with Catholic teachings that um, people with scrupulosity may be afforded a special place in heaven. And I'm wondering um, if you've heard of that and what your opinion on, on it. Okay, well, I certainly believe uh, that God is very patient and very uh, understanding and compassionate with people who suffer from scrupulosity, because it is really, uh, as, as you well know, it, it's not something that anyone should ever uh, want to experience uh, it's it's self torture in, in a sense that you're you're always always worried that you're in the state of sin or that you might be or you could probably be 
Uh, it's this constant worry and anxiety. Um, whether or not there's a special place in heaven, you know, I think people who suffer anything, uh, heavier crosses, I think, you know, uh, bear uh, or get a heavier crown or a bigger crown. So like my brother had muscular dystrophy. Today would have been his 56th birthday. My brother Michael, he died from muscular dystrophy, and he suffered a lot physically. Um, I truly believe that those, whether it's emotional, mental, or physical, or anything in between, if you suffer a lot in this life, you're going to be, receive a larger, shinier crown than, than the rest of us. Um, and I think scrupulosity falls into that same category because uh, it is an ailment. It's an affliction. We have to be patient with people. And I, as a confessor, you know, I can't be getting mad or upset because, per se, oh, I was just in confession the day before. Um, but at the same token, I have to guide them and say, look, it's, it's not going to be good for you to come every day um, because you're just going to feed into the fact that you probably were in sin, that maybe, you know, we need to do this uh, uh, twice a week, once a week, or something like that. But, uh, yes, I do believe that the Lord, in his infinite mercy and kindness, uh, takes all that, not just into consideration, but because you truly bear or or bore a cross heavier than others, that you receive a proper um, compensation for that. And I think, Father, Claire or anybody else can rest assured that if by the grace of God, they one day find themselves in heaven, they're going to be perfectly happy with where they are. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's not like the the <laughs> um, TSA list that you know, some get through pre-checked and some don't. There's no first class or a coach class in heaven. All right. You're in heaven or you're not in heaven. And so I don't think you need to worry that, you know, you didn't, your, your seat isn't going to be as nice as the other person's. God bless you, Claire. Thanks for the phone call. Next up is John in Nova Scotia. Listening on the EWTN app, John, you're on with Father Tregilio. Thank you so very much, uh, Father John. Um, my question is uh, about Enoch and Elijah uh, being assumed uh, body and soul uh, into heaven, and uh, they're in heaven now. Do they have to come back to earth to die so that when Christ comes back to rise them, that they will be raised as a glorious a glorious body within heaven. Yes, um, we believe, uh, and, and I, when I say we, the, the Catholic Church believes that the only two uh, bodies in heaven, physical bodies, are Jesus and the Virgin Marys. Now, when it says in Scripture that Enoch and Elijah uh, were taken up, it says they were taken up uh, to the heavens or to the sky, it doesn't say that they were taken to heaven as we understand heaven, as Jesus ascended to heaven, or that uh, Mary was assumed body and soul to heaven. So their physical bodies were taken up into the sky, but then um, what happened to them? I don't know. They dissolved. They disintegrated. But they're dead. They're not still, their bodies are not still alive. Their souls, all right, are with the Lord because, as I just mentioned with the other question, when Jesus descended into the hell of the dead, they would have been, their souls would have been a part of that, and they would have been uh, taken up to heaven. But their bodies need to be glorified and resurrected. Their bodies that were taken, all right, were taken somewhere, a place, and then, I don't know, if you want to use another dimension, or if you want to say it just they disintegrated, evaporated, but um, their take, being taken up to heaven is not the same as the Blessed Mother's. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 
888-900-3986. Be sure to join us tonight for the Holy Rosary with Father Benedict Groeschel. It's Monday. That means the Joyful Mysteries. 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The Holy Rosary with Father Benedict Groeschel. 9.30 Eastern right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Nancy in North Dakota listening on Real Presence Radio. Nancy, you're on with Father John. Hi, thank you for taking my call, Father John. My question refers back to the young man that called when he asked about Lucifer. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious when um, you had said that um, when Jesus died, he went to the, de- the down, he descended into the hell of the dead, and that everybody from Adam and Eve to the present time until he descended there would have been in hell of the dead. So my question is, if, if, all, if all of the souls were there, I'm just curious how Elijah and Moses could be with Jesus at the Transfiguration. Okay, well, that's a good question. And the Transfiguration happened here on Earth, all right? And uh, as we, uh, St. Thomas would explain, um, there's a difference between an apparition and an actual physical presence. Um, like when people, like at Lourdes or Fatima, uh, it's not that Mary's physical body was there, but they saw her. That's why we use the term apparition. Uh, it, it's an appearance. Our eyes perceive what they think is physically there, but they're not taking up space. Like you, you couldn't weigh Mary uh, at Fatima or Lourdes because she she doesn't have mass. All right, that's not her physical body. It's truly Mary's image. Okay, and you know if if you want to use it's a bad analogy, but I have to use something. It's like if uh, you projected a, a hologram of somebody who's truly alive and present wherever they're at, and you're seeing an image, okay? So at the transfiguration, uh, Moses and Elijah, all right, that's a, a, an appearance, okay? But they're physically dead. Their bodies are no longer in existence, and they're waiting for the resurrection. But they did not come down from heaven uh, in the sense that they were there, or did they, uh, you know... The hell of the dead, again, we use the word hell of the dead just to describe it, it was a, uh, a state, a place for the dead, but, you know, it's not hell in the sense that this is a place of punishment and torture, as is the hell of the damned. Does that clear it up, Nancy? Yeah, so it's like they were in a, they're in a waiting room, but it was an image that the three apostles saw at the Transfiguration. That's right. then. yes, yes, okay. absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks, Nancy. We appreciate the call. Uh, next up is Lynn, a first-time caller in the great state of Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Lynn, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. Thanks for taking my call. I had a question about Gregorian Masses. If the offering of Gregorian Masses for deceased is a legitimate practice within the Church, I've heard yeses and noes, and just wanted <laughs> to get your take on that. Yes, it, they're, they're legitimate. The problem is that in most parishes, and I mean like 99.9%, you just don't have the the luxury of having 30 contiguous masses celebrated for the same person because other people come in and they say, I would like to have mass offered for my uh, brother on August 30th, and or I want one on September 5th. And so you have a number of days where, so to get 30 contiguous days, would be difficult. However, if you've got a priest who has uh, doesn't have uh, mass intentions, like for instance, uh, we priests here at the seminary, uh, we're not given mass intentions from any parish. So if someone says, "Could you say Gregorian Mass?" Yes, we could because I could say thirty masses contiguously. Or priests at the retirement or nursing home. All right, it's priests who are in the parish 
who are assigned there who are celebrating a mass intention that's stated in the bulletin, uh, there's where it's more of a practical matter. And so because of that, you know, it, it, they, a lot of parishes won't say, yeah, would you like a, a Gregorian mass? Because if the priest there doesn't have the ability to do that, you know, he doesn't want to say to the person, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to farm this out. Um, you know, he might say, well, how about if we pick some uh, key dates? But yes, you can. They're valid. They're listed. Um, it's just finding an opportunity where a priest can do that is, is the question. Does that help, Lynn? Yeah, very good to know. And just to let everyone know, the um, National Shrine of Divine Mercy in Stockbridge Mass will say Gregorian Masses for souls, if anyone's interested in that. Well, that's good to know, because, you know, uh, like I said, you have to have priests who are available who could do that 30 contiguous days, because that's basically what the Gregorian Mass is. Very good. You can also visit womenofgrace.com. My wife, Johnette Williams' organization, has a relationship with priests that will do Gregorian Masses for them as well. So there are avenues by which you can make that happen. Uh, and finally, today we'll talk to Carol in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Carol, you are our last caller today and probably our best. What can we do for you? <laughs> Father John? Yes. I, I have a, a question I've often wondered about. Who determines the teaching that the non-Catholics in RCIA, who determines the teachings that they get so they get the strictly vital ones? Okay, well, that's supposed to be through the diocese. The bishop, ultimately, it's on his plate. Okay, it's his responsibility as the primary shepherd and teacher. So he entrusts that to uh, a vicar for education or, or evangelization or whatever department they have. So it's the bishop's ultimate, but the parish priest, the pastor, has to ensure that he's teaching orthodoxy in his program, even if he's not the RCI coordinator uh, it, so he's responsible, so is the bishop. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>